Welcome back, listeners. I'm Jerry Maguire. I'm also here with Anne McLaughlin, my co-host, who also happens to be the MP for Glasgow Northeast. Hello, Jerry. Hello. How's it going, Anne? <laughs> well, it's still going. <laughs> it's still going. We're back in Anne's living room on a, would it be a, fair to say, a tired night? A tired night. A bit knackered, a the pair of us. So this is going to be a high energy bit. podcast. High energy yeah. podcast, everyone. We're on our ironing board. <laughs> We're on the ironing board, if you can hear that. Sound dampening ironing board. Fancy um, recordings yeah. to do. <laughs> We've also got, I mean, Tinkerbell, I think she's been chucked out. So yeah. hopefully we won't, but she'll probably chap at the door to get back in. Well, she's not getting in. Well, anyway, and let's go, <laughs> let's go, let's go parliamental. <laughs> I don't know if you've heard, Dan, but David Cameron was alleged to have taken part in a very unkosher and haramful stunt. Oh, that's see, awful. see what I did there? There's a really good joke. That's so. a terrible ham-fisted attempt at a joke there. <laughs> oh. I, wasn't, I wasn't expecting that one. Um, so let's not get into details, right? But what's the weirdest thing you've ever done to get into a club? <laughs> the weirdest thing I've ever done to get into a club? Um... I was, I was, uh, I suppose I sang once because they said I was too late to get in. That's brilliant. And I said, well, you know, but you can't do without my talents there tonight. <laughs> and I did sing, I, I sang a really tacky song. Well, no, oh, I'm calling it a really tacky song. Never can't tell you what it is in case people out there love Offended. it. Um, but yeah, I sang this really tacky song and they let me in, but I think it was just to shut me up. Right. I've never, we don't get into clubs. The, the, the blokes just don't get in. If you don't get in, that's you tough. There's no way to argue with the bouncer. But. Oh, you weren't actually talking about nightclubs, were you? Just any club, I'm interested straight away. There we go, yeah. okay. <laughs> um, but apart from the David Cameron thing, apart from the rights and wrongs and all the kind of weird mm-hmm. allegations that are going, to me it was really interesting to hear that story because, A, you want to believe it. <laughs> you know, because it, sound, <laughs> it sounds like oh, this, this is probably true. But I think that kind of tells you a lot about what you think, or what I think, anyway, I'm on dark, I'm on dark psyche here, about what you think about maybe like a ruling class, the type of people that sort of get to that upper, very mm. top level, that you kind of believe that they're all they're all best pals, they've all, they're all mm. been in clubs, they've all got a weird past that they're all mm. sharing that no one talks about. And you've talked about some of the weird kind of rituals that you see in Parliament. Yeah. You know, the weird voting rituals. <laughs> None of and them that. involve pigs. None I have of them to involve say, pigs. Yet. But it, it, to me, it does, th- does show that there's definitely another world and even there yeah. now you're now in that building and there's another world just across the chamber from you yeah which is interesting for me for jeremy corbyn's point of view because people seem really excited about jeremy corbyn because yeah. there's a perception that he's not part of that world and he's not he's, he's not, not part of that world and you although know, some of his uh, front bench are but anyway no well you know it's a broad church and all that <laughs> um i mean harriet Harman was also went to the same school as george osborne so yeah. it seems you know it seems like a really small group and, and you're mm. from you're from greenock you know live in the east end I'm of glasgow greenock. Yep. so how does that feel for you, being in that environment where these people are just across the way and next to you, and they've all been at the same school, they've all been at the same club? Do you feel like an outsider? I, I don't feel... The funny thing is, when I first got there, I thought, despite the fact that I am of advancing years and I've been around <laughs> a wee while and, you know, I've you know had lots of different jobs and lots of different interactions with lots of different human beings, I suppose I did think that I might feel a little bit... Uh, not intimidated exactly... But I didn't, and I don't feel any of that. I don't feel I'm in the wrong place. I don't feel I don't have the right to be there. I feel that I need to be there for a short period of time for a purpose, mm-hmm. and that they're the ones that shouldn't be there because they're not representing the people that need representing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, no, I, I mean, I have to say, most of them don't actually come across as coming from a different planet until they start speaking, obviously. <laughs> Um, But yeah, I thought the whole thing was really quite... The other thing it showed me was that I think people from the ruling and upper classes like to think they're a wee cut above 
the rest. And the thing that really got me, as well as the revelations, if you know, if they proved to be true, is that somebody like this Lord Ashcroft would write a book like that, mm-hmm. would rat on his friend like that, mm-hmm. you know. And I have no sympathy for David Cameron because he does terrible things to people in my constituency and across the country. But I do think, God, you're a little bleep, bleep, bleep. <laughs> what a horrible, tacky, tasteless thing mm-hmm. to do. Yeah. And to do it as an act of revenge is pathetic, mm-hmm. to be honest. So um, there's no kind of, you know, there's no difference in that respect um, between us and them. We're all as capable of, you know, uh, ratting on our friends mm-hmm. or whatever, however you want to put it. But... Yeah, I can't remember what the question was. No. Really, I, I should just, have answered it. It's just back to relationship. If you've got powerful friends, you need to pay the piper. You yeah. know, it seems to be mm-hmm. that, you know, Ashcroft, for, for whatever reason, he's saying these things, but the perception is that he's maybe not, that Cameron's maybe not come good on what he's promised. And that just seems a bit unhealthy that there are yeah. promises like that. And Exactly. And my, my view, you know, as a politician, you have to be careful you have to be aware that the press can make anything out of nothing. And when I was an MSP, I read ridiculous stories about myself that I thought were ridiculous. My mum was was horrified to read them, really upset, you know. So, but my view is that just don't do anything that you would be ashamed of mm-hmm. if people found out about it. So I have I don't mind if anybody the press. I don't like the idea of it, but if there was press stories about me. Um, they're not going to be about anything that I'm ashamed of because I've not really done many things in life that I'm ashamed of. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's that's how you should live your life, mm-hmm. I think, if you want to be a politician. Don't do these things and then nobody can yeah. blackmail you like that. Nobody can punish you. And don't make promises, you know. Uh, just don't make those promises mm-hmm. and then you won't be in that position. Or you should get out and own it, I think. If you're going to make a mistake, it needs to be your mistake. Rather yeah. than trying to hide from it, a lot of no comment stuff, which I think um, is worse than denial, basically. Yeah. So today, when we're recording this, some info came out earlier on, and um, that it looks like there's been a movement on the school bus this year. So Anne, <laughs> I know hee-haw about it. Can you tell me what this was? What happened today? Yeah, <laughs> what happened today was absolutely brilliant. It was a, it was a real demonstration that um, people power can work. Um, Basically, the summary is that earlier this year, the council said, you know, you parents, you know how we told you that your kids, the kids in certain categories could get transport, free transport to school. And you know how they've been getting it? Well, we're taking that away now and um, you're just going to have to pay for them to get to school. So basically, a lot of my constituents and people across Glasgow were, uh, who are really struggling financially were having to pay for the children to get public transport or their kids were having to walk um, up to three miles. And I mean, some of them were kids walking from Milton right out to Barmulloch and it was ridiculous. It was taking like an hour and 20 minutes. Oh, there's all sorts of reasons why it was a terrible, terrible thing. The SNP council group were fantastic. A number of the councillors fought it alongside the parents. Um, the SNP MSPs fought it. Uh, the SNP councillors ha- said that they would reverse it. And you can't always do that, but they said they would reverse it 
if they win the election in 2017. And the support I gave it, I employed a social media consultant to spend several hours a week interviewing parents and then putting their stories out there to keep the support going. Anyway, um, I also wrote an open letter to Gordon Matheson, who was the leader of the council, uh, which was published in the Evening Times. Him and I grew up in the same street. Um, yes, we did. Well, didn't know that. We kind of hung about together. What? Oh, hang on. This is, this is interesting. This is <laughs> tricky. told you no, that. We'll have to dig into this in a future episode. I know, but I, t I hate saying that because I don't actually remember him, but he remembers me and my perfect, sister remembers perfect. him. I know, I feel a bit bad about that. But anyway, so I wrote him this open letter saying, you know, please, you're leaving now and I'm sorry about the way it's happened to you, but why don't you just make this your final lasting legacy? Reverse that decision. And he chose not to. The incoming leader, Frank McAvity, uh, chose to reverse the decision. It's very good that he did it. Don't forget, Frank, you voted for it in the first place and we all know why you're doing it, but it really doesn't matter today. What matters is those parents stood firm, those parents kept up the fight and those parents have won the school transport back. Everything that they had before is being reinstated and it's just a fantastic day for all these people. And now what I would say to them is, you have learned, maybe some of you have done this for the first time, some of you maybe have done it before, but what you've learned is that you can change things. So you need to keep on doing that. Let's think about the next thing that you really need to fight for. And I'll be very happy to support you in your campaigns. I'm so, so pleased about it. It's almost like there was some sort of political awakening over yeah. the past year. I'm not sure what happened. Uh, something. Something. I something think happened. what that could have been. Um, leading on from that. So we had a big anniversary in the past week. Um, I was six years married. That's the Aww. big anniversary everyone's happy about. I mean, happy there was another one. Thank you. There was another <laughs> one, which was obviously um, the referendum. I was thinking about maybe writing. I did a blog during the referendum, like everyone had one. Um, and I was going to write a wee one year on piece. And I realised that this is, is our one, one year on piece for me. This is my yeah. one year on piece. This is kind of doing something positive about it. Yeah. What's What do you think is your one year on piece? I mean, obviously you've had a big change. You've become an MP back in back in the seat of power again what's the, like the biggest lesson you've had what do you think is the biggest thing that you've taken from the past year on a personal level I would say the biggest lesson is just never say never because I said categorically if it's a no vote I'll be stepping away from active politics not stepping away from the SNP I fully intended to stay on but I had no, no doubt in my mind, and normally I'm quite wishy-washy about these things. I never really know what I'm going to do, but I was absolutely certain if it's a no vote, I cannot. I've spent 27 years doing this. I can't spend any more time. I need to move on. And uh, Graham, my partner, said to me, but you could stand for Westminster. And I said, oh, don't be ridiculous. Why would I want to do that? I can't do that. I need to go and find work. And here I am, a year later, I did stand, <laughs> <laughs> I did get elected um, and and also, you know, in a seat where people were saying, don't stand there because you're not going to get elected. Mm -hmm. And throughout the campaign, as you know, all the papers were saying it, everyone was saying it, apart from us, of course. Um, so never say never is, uh, is my personal lesson. And I suppose that's kind of a lesson for Scotland, you know, we thought we lost and I suppose technically we did lose mm. and we didn't win our independence. But who could possibly have predicted that that defeat would feel like a victory within a very short period of time? And who could possibly have believed that people would be so still so fired up about it? Mm. 
And we spoke last time, Jerry, if you remember about um, how come I was generating headlines about woo independence within ten <laughs> years, um, and then of course in the last couple of weeks, Nicola Sturgeon has said, you know, we're going to publish in the manifesto what we believe would be triggers for mm -hmm. an independence referendum and what would be the timetable. So what she's saying is there will be something in that manifesto for next year that will allow us to call a referendum in certain circumstances. Mm -hmm. So, you know, who could have foretold all of this? And now there are very few people who are not certain that we're going to be independent. And let me tell you, people behind the scenes, senior people behind the scenes in Westminster have said to some of our lot, well, we all know you will be independent in the not too distant future. Mm -hmm. They accept it and they're getting ready for it. Oh. So really just never say never because the scenarios that you put to yourself and you think you know how you would react, you think you know how Scotland would react. Well, I got it wrong. So, mm -hmm. Like you're saying about the, the people with um, the bus journeys for the kids, people have won maybe not independence with a big eye, but they've won small eye independence people yeah. have started to think obviously being a bit partisan been quite happy with the election result in mm -hmm. may um but apart from that what was more what was exciting for for me about that apart from the fact the party that won most of the seats was that people decided they wanted a change and yeah. that change may go against against the snp in the future mm. who knows but people i think have decided that actually if they don't like something they can do something about it yeah and they've gained That's that independence brilliant. of spirit so you know who knows what'll happen next? But yeah. it's, it's nice to hear that some senior people are are kind of bricking it a wee bit. That's nice to hear. I think actually some of them are just sort of accepting that there's nothing they can do about it. It's mm. an inevitable thing, and, and that's not something that makes everybody happy. I had a constituent email me, and it was quite a heartfelt email saying, "Please don't go ahead with a second referendum. I love being part of Britain, and it breaks my heart." And I and I feel for him. He wasn't being negative about Scotland in any way. I feel for people like that, but. I think the majority of people, you know, either want independence or they're interested, they're intrigued mm -hmm. by it. And I think it's going to happen. So, And you tweeted uh, recently and put on Facebook that you were on welfare rights training, you and your team. Oh, it was great. So what, <laughs> like, what's that? You and your team, like what's happening? What's, why are you doing it? What's happening? Right. So I promised during the election that if I was elected, I would provide welfare rights expertise from my office. Uh, now, before I start doing it properly, I mean, we do do it, obviously, with people coming to us with problems with the DWP. Before I start offering proper welfare rights advice, I am going to sit down with the different providers in the area and see how we can complement the work they do. But I want to have two people um, expert in welfare rights. So the starting point was that Three of us went on a two-day welfare rights training course. There's a number of different ones coming up that are a bit more specialist in things like PIP, universal credit, tribunals, things like that. This was giving us an overview of the basics, but it was fantastic. And I went on it because um, I went on it because I want to understand. I, I mean, I have recent personal experience with the DWP myself, so and and family members who have current experience. So it's not that I'm out of touch completely, but I really they change it all the time, so mm -hmm. that you don't understand it. So I really wanted to get my head around it, it in order to be able to advise people. But what I wasn't expecting to find was that it would really give me a real understanding of the stuff that I'm talking about in parliament mm -hmm. so now i'm sitting there thinking oh 
I can't wait for the next debate on welfare rights. I'm going to get stuck in there um, because it's even more shocking than I thought it was. But the training was brilliant and exhausting. But um, yeah, there's three of us in the office now who've done the basics. It's that confidence you get from knowing the details mm. that you're saying in your parliament. Now you've actually been, you've not just got an abstract understanding mm. about how this is bad and the principles behind it. You actually know specific yeah. cases. So do you think that'll be useful here in the constituency then that you're, with this training oh, that you'll be able to... It so will. Well, it means that, um, I mean, well, one of the things that's come out of it is there's a number of things that we're going to run awareness raising campaigns on. So, for instance, uh, men who think they should be entitled to pension credit when they become pensioners believe they have to wait until they're 65 before they apply for pension credit. Now, you need to be 65 as a man to get your pension, your state pension. But to get pension credit, you just need to be the age of retirement for a woman. So right now that's 62. So 62 year old men who can't claim their state pension yet could still claim pension credit mm. and should. So we're going to be running an awareness raising campaign on that. When universal credit comes in fully, there's an awful lot of awareness raising on that because there's a lot of ways that you can trip yourself up or they can trip you up and it could trigger quite a substantial loss. Um, there's a number of things that we can advise people, you know, that you must tick this box, this box that they never draw your attention mm. to. If you tick that box, it could be worth a lot of money to you. If you don't tick it, obviously it's going to be detriment. So there's a number of awareness raising campaigns that we are going to run. But it also I've got loads of people coming to surgeries and I'll be able to say to them or people I meet in the street or even just family members or friends, I'll be able to say to them, well, in actual fact, that's not what you should be applying mm -hmm. for or that's not what should have happened and here are your here are your rights mm -hmm. and and we can help you with that sounds like a really really useful course oh fantastic well the other thing is um i'm, I'm possibly at some stage going to get child poverty action group pay them to do a couple of days training with us once we've done the basics and then the specifics i might get child poverty action group to really ramp up our skills if you like now i've already been in touch with them about how much it would cost and they can take a number of people more than we would need so i'm thinking that what i'll do is i'll get in touch with local organizations and say would you like to just send somebody onto this course i've got to pay for it anyway so you might as well and that again will strengthen the support for people in the constituency who have problems with the welfare benefits in the past week week and a half maybe you spoke uh, really passionately about an issue that seems really close to your heart um, and it was the Tamils in Sri Lanka. Mm -hmm. um, first of all, can you tell us what, what's your connection to Sri Lanka? What, why are you so passionate about this topic? <laughs> if any of my friends are listening now, they'll say, oh no, don't get her started on Sri Lanka. Oh, hang on, should not ask you that question. No, <laughs> that, that mistake 101. I went there in 2008 and I worked for three months um, as part of a volunteer programme. And that was my first connection with it. But um, the reason I'm saying that to you about my friends is I would talk about it quite a bit and I never realised how much I was talking about it. And I remember Aileen Campbell, who's now the children's minister, saying to me, did you go to Sri Lanka, did you? Did you really? And I was like, you know what I did? And she went, yes, I do know you did. <laughs> and uh, all of my friends used to do that from time to time. Basically, um, I was out there for three months. I've been back twice since. I have a number of friends who worked out there for several years and I have a number of friends born and brought up there who live there. I've also got friends here who come from there. Mm -hmm. So lots of connections. Cool. So with that background, what was it that you raised in the Commons? What was it you brought 
What was you brought to the Commons' attention? It wasn't me that raised it. They have a thing called a Westminster Hall debate. You have about four of them a day. So it's it's basically a member gets a debate um, on a topic of their choice. So it was a Tory MP who raised it, who's got a personal interest in this. So basically what happens, you get a set amount of time. In mm -hmm. this case, it was an hour. He speaks about, you know, what the issues are and the minister has to respond. Mm. But the main opposition parties, which is now Labour and the SNP, each get a speaker who's allowed to sum up. So I was summing up on behalf of the SNP. Um, and basically he was talking about uh, basically civil rights for Tamils living in Sri Lanka. Um, there was a civil war, just to sort of try and summarise it, there was a civil war. In Sri Lanka, it was on when I was out there. I think it ended that year. Mm. Um, and it ended with the bombardment of Tamil areas um, with bombs. Uh, thousands of people died. Thousands of people who were no threat to anybody. They just happened to be Tamil. Mm. Um, and uh, then thousands more ended up in IDP camps, displaced persons camps. And a were virtually kept prisoner and the debate was about what had happened to Tamils to cause the civil war, what happened during the civil war at the end of it and what's happened since. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like a really, well it sounds like one of those, to, to be honest it sounds like one of those things that happens somewhere in Asia mm. and that people in Europe don't really know about or care about because it's not on our doorstep, you know the type yeah. of thing that if it happened closer to home we'd be up in arms about it. Um, yeah, it always bothered me, though, that um, it never got the same attention that Palestine got, for mm -hmm. instance. Um, and obviously Palestine deserves to get that attention, but I felt like any left of centre political activist that was interested in something going on in one of these other countries, it was Palestine. And, and as I say, absolutely right, what's happening to Palestinians is sickening. But it was equally sickening what was happening to Tamils. Now it's a wee bit better, um, but they've got a new president. <laughs> they've got a new president, and so many people were celebrating the fact that they've got this new president who's taken over from the despot who was the president before, mm -hmm. who I actually met when I was over there, um, Rajapaksa, his name was. But the guy who's taken over, the guy who beat Rajapaksa, was his right-hand man throughout all of that. He was the defence minister. And, you know, he never spoke out against people disappearing in the night and never being seen again. He never spoke out against all the Tamil people, men who were locked up in prisons, not, not to be given a trial, just decided they were guilty and that they were terrorists. He never spoke about, uh, about the people who were bombed by the Sri Lankan army. Well, he was the defence minister mm -hmm. at the time. So he is a wee bit better because he's certainly made a slight difference and the way he's talking is different to the way Rajapaksa talks. But, you know, uh, I am very, very sceptical about, uh, you know, there will not be enough progress in quick enough time as far as I'm concerned, but we'll see how it goes. But I think I was told off by the minister when he summed up. He said some members might have been better to reserve their criticism for the outgoing president rather than the incoming one in whom I have full faith. Oh. And I thought, well, bully for you, but, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. I don't. So you're not allowed to criticise the people that are gone? Don't criticise anyone? Yeah. That's, I mean, I, again, I, I know very little about Sri Lanka, but to me, 
a defence minister during a civil war. Mm. Sounds like someone, you know, it's not like they were a minister for pensions. Yeah. Um, they might have, I don't know, some some knowledge at least of what was going on. He was up to his neck in it, you know. I'm saying that and I'll never be allowed into Sri Lanka again. I've known people who've spoken out and uh, didn't get to go back. Um, but, yeah. Well, anyway, you've got to do what you've got to do, yeah. haven't you? And I turned to, there were people in the audience, audience, I don't know what you call it, anyway, there were members of the public had come in to watch mm -hmm. the debate, Tamils, and I turned to them and I said, do you believe all that, the stuff that the minister had been saying? And they said, no, it's going to be a complete whitewash. Well, since then, there's been a report has come out uh, from the ECHR, I think it is. Anyway, I've not, oh no, it might be United Nations, and I've not had the chance to read it. Um, but we'll see what it says and we'll see what happens. Yeah. Well, I was setting up all this gubbins in your living room next to the, the sound ironing board and the table <laughs> and kicking the cat out and all that. Um, we were talking about something that I wasn't aware of today, which was Nicola Sturgeon and Shami Chakrabati had a, had a joint press conference to talk about something. And tell me what that was about, because I don't know what it was. Oh, it was fantastic. It was uh, Nicola Sturgeon. Um, it was a government event and she was introduced by Shami Chakrabati from Liberty. Um, who I'm a great admirer of and um, she introduced Nicola to make a speech about human rights and the need to protect them and the Scottish government's determination to protect them um, and to fight the repeal of the Human Rights Act which the Tories want to do and uh, I'm obviously in, I'm part of the Justice and Home Affairs team at the Scottish, mm -hmm. not Scottish Parliament, at Westminster um, so I went along to listen to the speech and it was fantastic I mean, I've heard Nicola making speeches before, but, you know, I've known Nicola a long time. And if she wasn't a politician, what she really wanted to be when she grew up was an international human rights lawyer. Mm -hmm. So I know how important all of this mm -hmm. is to her. But she said some fantastic things. The people who were there invited from different organisations were so pleased. And Shami Chakrabati had me almost in tears at the end when she said, "I've, you know, but she's not... She's not the most, um, she's quite a critical person, rightly so. She's not somebody that that, that praises politicians yeah. easily. And she said at the end that she had waited a long, long time. I'm going to get emotional when I say this. <laughs> a long, long time to hear a political leader make a speech like that. Mm. And uh, it was great. It was fantastic because it really emphasised how important human rights is. It told me, yes, when we're fighting this down in Westminster, we've got the full backing of the Scottish government. And it, and it made me really proud because Nicola's a friend and, and she makes me proud every day. But yeah, spectacularly so today. You spoke to Theresa May in a very public setting, so we all know what happened. You asked her a question about <laughs> the refugee crisis. So what was it you asked Theresa May and what was the response you got out of her? Uh, I, well, it was quite a good response, I mean, believe it or not. Uh, she was making an update statement in the House of Commons on the refugee situation and talking about those refugees that we have, they have agreed to take. And she'd made some uh, statement about the, she'd set up some, can't remember it's called golden operation team or something i don't know but anyway something like that she set up some team and they're looking at how to settle the refugees when they get here so i just said to her look you know a lot of these refugees coming we're saying that we're taking the most vulnerable so they're the ones that will need the most support they're the ones that are likely to be the most nervous a lot of them won't speak any english then they'll be facing this country with a lot of trepidation 
glad to get out of wherever they are. But, you know, so I was saying, I think it's really crucial that they know how welcome they are the second they set foot on UK soil. So could her golden operation team, <laughs> I don't think it is called that actually, <laughs> probably nothing to do with gold, it's probably silver or bronze or something. But anyway, this team, could her team look at um, putting together some sort of proper, properly recognised welcome uh, thing for when they come? And that would do two things. One, it would tell them that they were welcome straight away <laughs> and it would delay their fears, but also it would involve the members of the public who are desperate to let people know and I talked about, you know, in Germany, when you saw those scenes where yeah. people seemed to mm -hmm. have just spontaneously made their way to railway stations and mm -hmm. you saw little kids handing out sweets to little little refugee mm -hmm. kids. And and that, I think, speaks volumes. And I think it really, it really kind of forges friendships. You know, it's, it's saying you're mm -hmm. welcome here and we physically welcomed you, you know, so we'll be there for you. So she agreed. She said yes. She thought that was a very good idea and that she would definitely get them to look at how we do that. And she felt that the most important thing about it was that it would involve the members of the public mm. who had this sort of outpouring of support but didn't know what to do with it. Brilliant. That's, that's brilliant. Well, hopefully that works. I mean, mm. you're saying when people, if, when people come here, um, if they are put in special housing or whatever, then I suppose it must be, and I've got no experience this, this is me guessing, it must be a kind of militarised experience, you know, people making sure that you're there, very official people, so it can yeah. be quite a dry, scary process, yeah. even if ultimately it's going to be good. Yeah. Those first weeks, even if the journey's wet, going well, it must uh, be quite scary those first few yeah. weeks. So if anything you can do to humanise that and show people that actually, you know, we're... we're we're friends. And yeah. That, yeah. For that to be a nice introduction. Yeah. Well, that's great. Well, let's, let's hope Theresa May sticks to it. Yeah, she will. I'll make her. <laughs> Big news, Anne. Obviously, the we've just beat today when we're recording this. Scotland just beat Japan <laughs> in the Rugby World Cup. Um, What's rugby? Rugby. It's kind of, <laughs> it's like a, like, a, like a melted football. I used to play it. It was a great sport. Great oh, sport. is it the melted football with the, the mel big fit men playing it? Yeah. Well, <laughs> well hang on. This is taking a weird turn now, then. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I, I get out of it because um, I wasn't fit enough. Um, <laughs> but yeah, apparently, apparently, big news. You know, they're banned, you know, they ban knives. You've been mm. to football, they take the stick off you and all that. Mm -hmm. They don't want you causing hassle. Mm. And they also took another instrument of torture out, I think. <laughs> and it was the um, the bagpipes. How could you call the bagpipes an instrument of torture? I, I was saying that just to, just to play up to that. <laughs> I genuinely like the bagpipes. Um, yeah, yeah. But it's really weird. You know, like other nations, know. you know, we've got the, the hacker. I know people don't take the hacker in; they do the hacker. But um, you know all these things about it's meant to be the, the, the you know, the, the, the colourful traditions of the world, and we all come together and there's this big thing. But don't play your bagpipes. But you apparently used the might of the government to make a statement of this. So, <laughs> did um, I? Well, did you not sign an early day motion? Oh, I signed it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it was Hannah Bardell's early day motion that I signed. Yeah. So what was that? Was it just to say? This is rotten, by the way. Can we get the it bagpipes back? It was to say, <laughs> you may take our lives, but you'll never take our bagpipes, basically. <laughs> that um, should have been the text. That would have been fantastic. <laughs> well, I mean, who who was it? I mean, the fact is that they kept telling us that we are Britain, we're all important parts of Britain, and now parts of British culture are actually banned from mm -hmm. something that's happening in Britain. It is happening in England, yeah, isn't yeah. it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think I read somewhere today that there's been a partial reprieve. I don't know what a partial reprieve is. But, you know, it's not a surprise. Boris tried to ban bagpipers. Mm -hmm. um, it didn't work, though. I have to tell you, when we are in Parliament every single day since I got elected, that I am in that in Westminster, if you nip outside onto the terrace, 
which I do frequently to try and mm -hmm. get some fresh air, there's a piper playing on the bridge and he plays the entire time. He doesn't stop. Wow. And if he disappeared, we would all notice because we're so used to the piper being yeah. there. So Boris tried, the rugby people, whoever they are, yeah. tried, but tough luck. I think it's rotten. To I'm really, I, I was really offended by that because, mm -hmm. um, you know, when you think um, Vuvuzela, I mean, they've banned Vuvuzelas as well. We Ugh. basically don't have that much excitement in the crowd, please. We're watching rugby, can you keep quieting down? But can is rugby not one of the ones where you can actually take alcohol? Yeah, that's the th I mean, that's the thing. The, you the can take a bottle of whiskey, you can take a bottle of gin, a bottle of Pims, yeah. but you can't take a bagpipe. It's like that thing about cricket, you know, you're allowed to drink, you know, about cricket, but you don't, don't drink in your football, you know, whatever. So there's, yeah, there's a different... There's different culture or perceived culture in mm. rugby, um, but yeah, to ban the bagpipe seems a bit weird. Very ban, like you're saying, the visible, the visible part of being Scottish under the under the cloak of security, because who knows what's in that bagpipe. Well, that's ridiculous. But I've got an idea. People could just take ghetto blasters. I'm sorry if ghetto blasters is an <laughs> yeah. old thing. If for the younger viewers, ghetto blasters <laughs> are um, no, yeah. I think we're just have to abandon what are they? it. They're like they're like very big headphones for your phone. <laughs> right. Should take a, a, a thing that plays music and play bagpipe music. What are they going to do then? Hmm? Yeah, there we go. That's a that's a brilliant that's a brilliant idea. If you're I there, know, them. if you're there for this, <laughs> if you're there for any more Scotland games, play it on your phone loud and proud. <laughs> <laughs> but I saw in you the wee appearance in the national. There was, was a letter in it. I don't know what it was. So do, do you want to tell tell the listeners and me? Why you made a little appearance in the National? Well, <laughs> I had to get a letter to clear something up. There was a story appeared um, saying that I was calling for the Red Road Flats to be used for any refugees who might come and live mm -hmm. here. The Red and, Road um, Flats that are currently Yeah, the ones that bits. are about to be demolished. Yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> and, um, and I thought, ah, oh, that's a slight misunderstanding, a slight misinterpretation <laughs> of what I said. And what had happened was I'd got a phone call from the National saying you know, talking to me about the refugee situation and where they could go in Glasgow and, and saying to me, and I'm, I'm absolutely certain there was absolutely no malice in this, it was just a misunderstanding, asking me, did I think the Redwood Flats could be used? And I said, well, no, they're about to be demolished. Mm -hmm. And the question then was, so what if they, um, what if they're, you know, st still, you know, but could they still be used? Could they stop the demolition? And I said, well, I suppose they could st stop the demolition date. I said, but I think the innards will have been taken out mm -hmm. of the flats. Yeah. Um, and so the next question was, well, what if they've not been taken out of the flats? And I said, well, even if they've not been taken out of the flats, I think there's a good reason why people were moved out because I don't think they were fit to, they weren't mm -hmm. habitable. Yeah. Um, I don't think. And the question was, what if they were habitable? <laughs> And I, th I said, well, yeah, okay, if they were habitable and the demolition could they be stopped. They still in one piece. And if, <laughs> I mean, I didn't add if they're all nicely decorated and had like, mm. nice home furnishings, mm. but basically I was saying, well, okay, I was just responding to a series of questions. If that were the case, but it isn't the case, mm. I'm absolutely certain of it, um, then of course we could. But I did point out that Site Hill would be better because there's three high flats in Site Hill they're mostly empty, but there's still people living in some of them. So they're still habitable. Yep. They're still up there. I don't think there's a demolition date. And more importantly, there's people there who could help refugees to settle in. But the story appeared as me calling for the Red Road Flats to be used. And I had one or two people saying to me, uh, uh, are you stupid? <laughs> <laughs> Have you not been past the Red Road Flats? I thought you were the MP for the area. Don't you know? And I thought, oh, goodness. And I actually, I mean to get in touch with... Um, with the group who are organising the demolition, because I just sat down with them a couple of weeks before to discuss how it was all going. Mm -hmm. So they must have thought, 
Are we living in a parallel universe yeah. here? Mm -hmm. But anyway, so I didn't call for the Redwood Flats to be, uh -huh. and I just sent a letter in, and the National were kind enough to publish it. And I'm sure there was no, uh, they didn't intend to make me sound like some kind of Egypt <laughs> that didn't know what was going on in our constituency. And that brings us to the end of another episode of Parliamental. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can contact us on Twitter at Parliamental Pod, on Facebook, search for Parliamental, and via email at parliamentalpodcast at gmail.com. Please subscribe to us on iTunes and leave a review if you like the show. Anne and I will be back in a fortnight with another episode, so thanks for listening, everyone. Bye. Bye.